come to you today obviously on the heels of yet another deadly shooting in this country mass shooting this one the deadliest since the Parkland High School shooting earlier in the year uh, left 17 kids dead uh, the death toll in Thousand Oaks California 11 12 including the shooter overnight simply a tragic scene uh, at a country western bar there in a community full of college students and our Natalie Brunel uh, joins us now she's uh, live uh, in that community she knows it very well she went to school there Natalie uh, I imagine that um, it, there's certainly been an outpouring of grief this afternoon there yeah, absolutely, Devin. This hits very close to home, and my heart goes out for all of the college students that were in there, as well as the, the college communities, including Pepperdine University, where we have learned that one of the students was among the victims. Now, we are standing right across the street from the bar, where you can probably tell behind me there are a lot of command units and a massive law enforcement presence that is still here canvassing the scene for evidence. This all unfolding last night at about 11.20 p.m. when the gunman went into the borderline bar and grill here in Thousand Oaks and sprayed the area with bullets, killing the bouncer first and then heading inside um, and shooting the victims inside. People um, went into a state of chaos, people throwing chairs through windows, trying to get to safety and helping each other uh, get to first responders. Um, right now, we're learning a little bit more about the suspected gunman, 28-year-old Ian Long. He uh, was a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and we know that he had several run-ins with law enforcement, but really the big question is what was the motive? Why would he choose this area as a target? Because as you mentioned, so many college students here last night. It was actually college night. Um, this happened on Wednesdays. I remember it from my time at Pepperdine. And this was a, a night where 18, 19, 20-year-olds were able to come here. They got a, an X on their hand to, to signal to the bartenders that they were not old enough to drink. The aim here wasn't to drink. It was really to just go out, have fun, dance. There were line dancing nights, salsa dancing nights, and this is really hitting the community hard. Just an absolutely heartbreaking tragedy. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much uh, for that report, and uh, we know you'll stay on the story for ABC News. Pierre, um, you know, it feels like we've been here so many times before. Just last week, it feels so long ago, but that shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, 11 dead, senseless acts, they keep happening. Uh, we can talk about guns. We have some guests coming up to talk about that, but it also seems here with a former Marine, potentially some mental health issues at play. It, it looks like it. There was an incident in April, and neighbors are telling uh, some of the reporters there that the mother was concerned about acts of violence, or prone uh, to violent outbursts, if you will. Uh, in one particular call, there was a lot of banging on the walls. One neighbor described the mother as telling them that her walls had been kicked in. So that was the state of the home. So uh, police came to the scene. Apparently, there was some conversations about whether he should get a psychological evaluation. Um, nothing was done or nothing was found, not enough evidence to have him committed, uh, and no stop put on his ability to buy a weapon. So he apparently bought the weapon uh, legally. And as you said, the country is dealing with an increasing number of mass shootings, uh, increasing in frequency and larger and larger in scale. Uh, just a thumbnail search uh, since last um, October, uh, Las Vegas, there have been at least six of these type of shootings, including yesterday, with 129 people killed. It's just simply incredible, and we know uh, that uh, two of our guests joining us now, uh, Dr. Jen Ashton, ABC News medical correspondent, of course, uh, Mark Kelly, former uh, astronaut and um, uh, gun control advocate, joins us as well. It's great to have both of them in this conversation. Mark, let me start with you. 
Um, you know, what's your reaction to to to, to this this uh, latest killing in in the context of the numbers Pierre is citing and your efforts? It seems we've been here so many times in just the past year. A lot of positive momentum, a lot of young people out there, and yet these things simply keep happening. Well, we've got 4% of the world's population and 46% of the world's firearms. We've got more guns than people, and we make it very easy for people who are, have mental health issues, are felons, even legally, even suspected terrorists can buy firearms in our country. So we've got a lot of loopholes in the laws. We've got to fix them. California actually has done a pretty good job at this. Uh, it's not going to stop everything. Uh, several years ago in California, there was a gun violence restraining order that was passed through ballot initiative. And what that means is if you identify a family member or a friend who you feel is at danger, in danger of uh, shooting themselves or somebody else, you can have that firearm pretty easily removed from the, from the home under current law in California. Obviously, you know, this, uh, this person slipped through those cracks. Uh, but, you know, we know that with stronger gun laws, there is less gun violence. That's clear across the country. It's clear across the planet as well. Uh, so we've, we've just got to do a better job. We had an election that really spoke to this just two days ago, yeah. and this is going to allow us to make some serious change in Congress. And I do want to ask you about that in a second, but we want to bring Jen, uh, Dr. Jen Ashton into this as well. Uh, Dr. Ashton, it does seem here, as Mark was saying, that um, the mental health system uh, sort of failed to catch this or failed to report it, or the systems weren't there. Um, the suspect had been getting some help, had been seen, had been on the radar. Um, what's the fix for that, and why can't we seem to, to break through on stepping up the, the availability of those resources? You know, I think when you talk about the mental health issue here, there are really two elements or two sides of it that we need to be aware of. Number one, the shooter. In many, many cases of these horrible tragedies, there is a clear mental health or mental illness angle to this, because otherwise, um, a, a sane, healthy person could not possibly do to one other human being, let alone many others, um, what, what a lot of these people do. That's the case in the majority of cases, not all, but the majority. So what do we need to do for that? The things that Mark Kelly was just talking about, we need to treat this no differently than if you saw someone bleeding on the street or having a seizure on the street. We hope you wouldn't just walk over that person. You would bring them to medical attention or bring medical attention to them. If you feel that someone is in danger of hurting themselves or someone else, we need to drop the stigma that's associated with mental illness and get that person help. That's one aspect. The other aspect here, which is very, very important for all of us to keep in the front of our minds and hearts on a day like today, is that when we keep hearing and seeing tragic and violent cases of violence, particularly gun violence, like we're seeing now, like we saw in Pittsburgh, it takes a toll on all of our mental health and conditions. Mm. You can't watch these things or hear about them and not empathize and sympathize with the victims, their families, the first responders, and that does psychological stress and damage to us as a society that we need care for. So we need to care for the victims, we need to care for the shooters in many cases, and we need to care for ourselves. You've heard people talking about uh, 
cases like this falling through the cracks. And when I've talked to law enforcement officials around the country, one of the things they've mentioned is that when you have police or others in the governmental community, if you will, who have interactions with someone who's showing some level of distress or violence, particularly if the police have an encounter, they say that there's got to be a better way for the system to blink red if that person goes into tribe to buy a weapon. Uh, at least to let law enforcement know, hey, that person that you had a conversation with two months ago, six weeks ago, this person is trying to buy a weapon. So that there could be some sort of follow-up, even if you don't confiscate the weapon. And I want to put that to Mark Kelly. Mark, um, in trying to find some common ground here, it does seem that mental health protections, uh, restrictions on gun buyers seems to be one of, at least from uh, recent polling, the Pew Institute had 89% of gun owners and non-gun owners alike supporting preventing people with mental illnesses from getting, uh, being able to purchase a weapon. You have your pulse on Congress and the legislative pipeline. Is there an effort afoot? Could we see something take place on mental health in this new Congress, do you think? Well, we could. Uh, let me just say, when you say 80% of Americans, that's true, right? 94% of Americans support universal background checks for all gun sales. 67% support stronger gun laws to protect people from gun violence. That does not extend to the gun lobby, though. And that's part of the problem, is that they'll, uh, at about every turn, will oppose what seems to the rest of us to be common sense legislation. Let me give you an example. Under current federal law, the Veterans Administration can send names to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System of people that they really feel are a danger to themselves or others. There's 174,000 of those in the system, and those people are, in theory, prevented from buying a firearm. The problem with this is, uh, just about two years ago, the House of Representatives tried to undo that with a new piece of legislation, I think it was H.R. 1181, to try to remove that from the system. It hasn't been debated in the Senate or voted upon. We hope it doesn't pass. But my point is, even when it comes to mental health and keeping guns out of the hands of people that are potentially dangerously mentally ill, we have the National Rifle Association and some members of Congress, a lot of them, uh, largely from the Republican Party, work against us. This Congress, though, this election two days ago was a referendum on gun safety. Uh, an NBC poll showed that it was the top, it was the set, you know, second most important issue among Democrats, fourth most important overall. People want to see some change. And now we have a House of Representatives that can deliver that. Yeah, and you sure did. Your organization, uh, Michael Bloomberg's Every Time for Gun Safety, also had some uh, electoral successes. We saw in a number of races. Mary Alice was tracking those. Uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Colorado, Arizona, Minnesota. Georgia. Candidates sweeping in uh, on platforms, running on platforms for gun violence safety protections. And I know that your PAC yeah. was able in a lot of ways to help fundraise for a lot of those candidates. Sort of Out, eat away the at the, what has been sort of a, a fundraising advantage that NRA-backed candidates have had in the past. Can you speak to that? Did you feel like this year you had more power in that space? Yeah, well, we, uh, we endorsed 307 candidates, 249 of them won, 95 of them are going to Congress. The NRA lost three, 33 of their top-rated people from the House of Representatives. Uh, not only did we, you know, help raise money for candidates, we raise money ourselves and spend money on this issue to get people elected to office. Uh, in one, in, uh, in the case of four House races, we 
We put up about $7 million uh, to help these people. And uh, we, we had people across the board, both Democrats and some Republicans, by the way, that ran on a platform of gun safety. So this issue won at the ballot box in the House of Representatives uh, here a couple days ago. And now we're going we're gonna to pass some legislation in the House, and now it's going to go over to the Senate to see if they're just going to sit by and do nothing, which is typical, or they're going to feel some pressure to actually act. You know, I have one more question I'd like to put to both of you uh, that actually came from a, from a fact sheet that the Giffords uh, group put out just today, your group put out just today, said that women in the United States 11 times more likely to be murdered with a gun than peers in other country. We often see that women are more likely to be victims. Why is that? Uh, well, it's because of domestic violence a lot. Women are more often shot and killed by people they know, where for men it's more likely that it comes from a stranger. Strong domestic violence legislation, like uh, a bill that Amy Klobuchar is a sponsor of in the United States Senate, uh, can really go a long way to protecting women from gun violence. I think it comes back to the fact, and, and this is coming from a gun owner, somebody who served in the military for 25 years. I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment, but when we have 46% of the world's firearms among 4% of the world's population, we've got a lot of guns, and they very frequently wind up in the wrong hands. So because of that, we need to take extra steps to make it hard for certain people to get guns, and we generally don't do that. And Dr. Ashton, one of the uh, low-hanging pieces of fruit, if you will, for uh, gun safety advocates here, and also even the NRA in some cases, seems to be restarting some government research on the gun violence epidemic in this country. It effectively hasn't taken place. There aren't any government studies by the CDC since 1997, uh, since the so-called Dickey Amendment went into place. There's some effort now to get that away. How important is it to get those, to get that data, to get the CDC to look at this uh, as a health and safety problem for Americans? It's important. Uh, you know, we're starting to see more of it in the medical literature. Uh, there have been articles about guns and gun violence and gunshot wounds in OBGYN journals and pediatric journals. The CDC starting, of course, a little bit late, but to be more aggressive with how they collect data. Um, but I, I just want to get back to the, to the issue about gun violence against women, because I think it really bears emphasis here that we hear so much now in the Me Too movement about the path to parity in everything. I want to be crystal clear, in medicine, in health, women are decades behind where they should be in a country like the United States, and we need to change that. There are major gender differences in medicine and in terms of access of care, care that women get, disease processes that affect women differently than men, and now we're hearing statistics like gun violence against women. We have to be very careful when we say treat women exactly the same as men, because in medicine, at least, in some cases, they shouldn't be treated exactly as men. They're different. In some ways, they need more attention. Things occur differently. This is not a one-size-fits-all approach in medicine and in science. And I think to do that uh, runs the risk of not giving women the care, the research, and the attention that they need. An important reminder for sure, as we all sort of hope that this moment is a turning point uh, in ways that others uh, have not. Our thanks to Mark Kelly for joining us uh, live today for his input. And Dr. Ashton, we know you're sticking around, so thank you both 
very much for coming to the briefing room. Moving on today here in Washington, uh, Mary Alice, we've got uh, continuing fallout from the firing of Attorney General Jeff Sessions yesterday by President Trump. Uh, and today's scrutiny sort of focusing on his replacement, uh, the former chief of staff to Jeff Sessions, Matt Whitaker, someone who has a controversial past uh, criticizing the Mueller probe. And Democrats demanding that he also recuse himself from oversight over the Mueller investigation. At this point, that doesn't look likely. But politically, really puts Democrats in a tough spot. They wanted to come in with a new majority in the House and pass some legislation, potentially on health care or corruption. And now, almost as if the president daring them to work on investigations of this nature instead. And they are going to investigate. In fact, today, right out of the gate, a number of Democrats have sent letters to the White House asking them to preserve documents related to the firing of Jeff Sessions, looking into the past of Matthew Whitaker. Uh, and our uh, legal contributor, Kate Shaw, joins us now by phone to talk a little bit more about that background and how it could impact a fight over the appointment of Matt Whitaker to be the acting attorney general. Kate, great to have you with us. Uh, we understand that the West Wing is buzzing this afternoon over an op-ed that just posted in the Washington Post uh, by the husband of Kellyanne Conway, George Conway. He's a constitutional uh, scholar, and he is raising some questions. And a contrarian. And a contrarian. Uh, he is basically raising some questions that this is uh, unconstitutional to appoint Matt Whitaker. And take a look here. He says, uh, we can't tolerate the evasion of the Constitution's explicit, precise design, that being that the Senate has to confirm uh, someone who is going to lead the Justice Department. Uh, Matthew Whitaker's a nobody. His job as chief of staff didn't require confirmation. And for the president to install Matt Whitaker as the chief law enforcement officer is to betray the charter of the document, the Constitution. Does he have a fair point, Kate Shaw? You know, yeah, so it's a, it's a joint op-ed that George Conway authors with Democratic lawyer Neil Katyal, and this is the second recent op-ed the two of them have written together, and they seem to be trying to make the point that certain constitutional principles transcend partisanship. So they wrote an op-ed a couple of weeks ago arguing against the president's proposal to end birthright citizenship, and now we have this op-ed that suggests that installing without Senate consideration or confirmation somebody to head the Justice Department uh, is unconstitutional. Now, there's a statute that does allow the president to install someone on an acting basis. Uh, but they're suggesting that in this instance, that statute is unconstitutional. And, you know, Kachel himself was actually the acting solicitor general under President Obama. <laughs> but he says that was, you know, that's an inferior kind of position. The acting solicitor general has a couple of bosses above him. The attorney general is at the top of the Justice Department. And for a position that important, the Constitution says the president has to nominate, the Senate has to take a look, right? Nobody scrutinized the background of this individual to assess you know, the kinds of views he holds, the kind of, um, you know, whether he's actually fit for a position like this. And so they suggest that it's unconstitutional. And I, I'm not surprised to hear the West Wing is buzzing about it. Yeah. In fact, they pointed out, uh, these two constitutional scholars, that this has never before happened in several hundred years. Has, has an uh, attorney general of the United States been appointed without any confirmation, any scrutiny, as you point out? So certainly unprecedented in many ways. I guess the next question is, before we let you go, Kate, can sure. this be challenged? Who would bring a challenge right. to this appointment? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, anyone who's subject to any kind of action that's initiated by the Justice Department could raise a challenge that the Justice Department is headed by an individual who is installed unconstitutionally. So, you know, it literally any action that, they're on, that they take right now could be fraught with some legal doubt. And, you know, I should say that just now I'm seeing it's not just George Conway, but other prominent conservative thinkers, including it looks like John Yoo, uh, who was at the head 
head of the Office of Legal Counsel under George W. Bush, and also a very prominent conservative scholar and a proponent of executive power and presidential power, also seems to agree that this is an unconstitutional appointment. So I think if we really hear kind of a growing chorus um, of, of skeptics about the constitutionality of what has happened, uh, the White House is either going to quickly need to move to actually nominate someone and subject them to Senate scrutiny, um, uh, or there could be a, a serious legal challenge, you know, in the very near future. And we know the so White House. It's fascinating. We know the White House, though, is planning on taking their time on, on naming the permanent replacement for Jeff Sessions. Kate Shaw joining us by phone, ABC News legal contributor. Thank you uh, so much, Kate. Good to be uh, with you. Shifting gears a little bit to midterm politics, we're still tracking the results from Tuesday night's historic elections. Mary Allison, there are some cliffhangers out there. In fact, uh, I'm fascinated by what's going on in Florida. Right. And Andrew Gim Gillum, the Democrat, African-American candidate, conceded. Now he's sort of walking it back. Right. Not a complete walk back, but we all saw him on election night there on stage, kind of formally concede in front of the cameras. And yet as these absentee and provisional ballots have come in and the margin has really narrowed in his favor, also in uh, Bill Nelson's favor, the Democrat uh, Senate senatorial candidate, now we're talking about the potential for a recount. Uh, it's looking like we really could end up within that margin that would trigger an automatic recount. Yeah, by, la by last check, just before we came to air, they are under half a percent apart in That's Florida, which would be the which would be the trigger. About 38,000 votes. Uh, and Andrew Gillum, you saw there just speaking, says, let's count every vote. Let's see it. So that could be headed also in the Senate race in Florida. Bill Nelson, the Democrat, exactly. Rick Scott. That's also a, a hair sliver. And that was part of what um, ensured that all these remaining provisional ballots got counted was that Bill Nelson said he wasn't going anywhere. He he wouldn't concede. He said they needed to keep counting. Um, and, and, and so the margins have gotten this close, unbelievably close. It's possible we get a recount in both. All right. So flashbacks to 2000 and the hanging chads. And I mean, Florida is always be... <laughs> so interesting. It's often razor thin in Florida. That is why it is a true swing so state. So we could be headed to Florida soon and broadcasting live from there, we're also keeping our eyes on the Georgia governor race, Stacey Abrams, uh, in a very close race there with Brian Kemp, although he's declared, he's resigned today, his post as Secretary of State. He's ready to move into his new digs, although Stacey Abrams says we're counting every vote as well. Absolutely. Her team demanding that every vote is counted. Uh, we know that some of the outstanding provisional ballots are in heavy Democratic areas, so her team uh, feels like it's in their interest to make sure that all those votes are counted. But it's important to note, it's not necessarily that she thinks she would surpass him in the total vote count, but keep him from an automatic victory because in Georgia you have to get 50% plus one to not go to a, a runoff election. And it is that close and that narrow in that race. So she's trying to hit the runoff threshold and we right, could be back be down there as well. In so just a few weeks. Little Georgia, little right. Florida action. And, and we should say there's also ahead. a number of um, outstanding House races that have yet to be called. All right, moving on. Finally today, uh, speaking of Democrats and something that could send shivers down their spine, uh, liberal icon on the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, suffered an accident last night at the court. She fell in her chambers, according to the court, um, and it has been hospitalized. She is still at George Washington University Hospital. She broke three ribs, we're told. Uh, at 85 years old, that is uh, no insignificant thing. We have Dr. Jen Ashton is back with us. Uh, Dr. Jen, give us um, your sense, obviously not seeing her firsthand or seeing her chart, but how serious is something like some broken ribs in a fall at age 85? 
Uh, serious. Uh, really, anything that happens in someone who's 85, uh, even in the best of health, could be potentially serious. Uh, that's why there's a whole specialty in medicine called geriatrics uh, to take specialized care for, for people in this age group. Uh, they are more susceptible to complications uh, for the same type of injury or disease as a younger person would be. But here's what I really want people to know about rib fractures. They are excruciatingly painful, and that's when just one rib is fractured or broken. When you have multiple fractured ribs, you have to think about it. It is impossible to rest the rib cage. Every time we take a breath, those ribs are moving. You can't put a cast on the ribs uh, like you can with a broken arm or a broken leg. So um, the, the bulk of initial hospitalization is usually for pain control. But the other things you want to keep an eye on when you talk about an elderly person, uh, any internal bleeding, whether at the fall that was strong enough um, in some cases to break ribs could cause a head injury although you know also we have to remember that both men and women develop osteoporosis with age so oftentimes it can be an incredibly minor fall that causes a rib fracture in an elderly person um, and then the things that we would watch down the road breathing pneumonia risk if you can't take deep breaths it does place you at increased risk for pneumonia so um, it's actually the opposite of counterintuitive but you want to get someone up ambulating moving around sitting up um, as quickly as possible as long as their pain is well managed because that's going to generate the the best air movement and the best uh, environment for their lungs to help prevent the onset of pneumonia but She's one tough cookie, so. She's a tough cookie, I, I was going to say. She she's is. probably up moving around right now. Right. She broke six ribs uh, just a few years ago, and she, of course, beat cancer. Right. And we just and saw she's written many... about doing daily push-ups, which yeah. motivates me. She was me. pumping some iron there. Uh, she hired clerks to be with her through 2020, so she is <laughs> determined to stay on that court. Yeah, and we wish her well. We yeah. do. Thank you so much for sticking around, Jen. Appreciate that you very bet. much. Um, one footnote to today's uh, news out of the court. President Trump went to the court this afternoon for the investiture ceremony for the newest Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't there, but I think we have a picture. Here's the president with his newest justice. Seemingly, he can't get enough of uh, Brett Kavanaugh and the pictures. Big smiles. Big smiles there. And of course, fascinating to see the president among all those justices who Mary Alice could decide uh, some pretty significant cases, challenges, perhaps involving the Mueller investigation coming very soon. Uh, among other things, as well as gerrymandering, uh, abortion cases, states are, and, and circuit courts, uh, know that this is a very new Supreme Court, and they're looking for cases that they potentially can work to get up to the bench very fast. All right, much more ahead from the Supreme Court. And tomorrow here in the briefing room, we thank you for joining us today. Of course, you can follow the latest on all these stories at abcnews.com and the ABC News app. Great to have Mary Alice with us. I'm Devin Dwyer. We'll see you next time.